0: Your brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. A simple search throughout the Old Testament will show you where the phrase Son of Man is mentioned and what things could have been expected to be accomplished concerning him. The vast majority of cases where the title Son of Man is used, by far, is when God is addressing the prophet Ezekiel, who was the prophet sent or raised up by God to preach to those who were suffering under the bitter yoke of slavery by the Euphrates River during the Babylonian captivity. By calling him Son of Man, God is sort of putting Ezekiel in his place. He is reminding him what we all remember about ourselves this coming Ash Wednesday. Remember, O man, that you are dust, and unto dust you shall return. God gives his word to Ezekiel. Ezekiel is to speak it. He is to warn those suffering under bondage against the false hope of false shepherds who speak lies giving them the false hope that Jerusalem will not be destroyed and that they will soon return. Ezekiel is sent to tell them that it will be destroyed and they won't return, and it's their own fault. But he is also sent to teach them to expect a greater shepherd who will gather his flock into one and who will rule over his people in mercy. Ezekiel is to speak God's word, but he's just a man. He is a son of man, God calls him. A son of dust, a mere descendant of that first man, Adam, who rebelled in pride and brought ruin upon all his children. This is the title as it applies to Ezekiel and to all of us. The prophet is just a man. The preacher is just a man. The speaker of God's word is no different from any of you. He's a son of man, a sinner, but the word he speaks is God's. God is not like one of us. As Moses writes, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and he will not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Job's friend in giving him very unhelpful counsel, uses the same title even more forcefully when he says to Job, How then can man be righteous before God? Man who is a maggot, and a son of man who is a worm. So clearly, son of man is not in itself the most exalted title, is it? Or what honor should there be in such a title? It is a title of one who stands under judgment, who has no words to say unless God gives him something useful to say. You and I are sons and daughters of man. You and I are sinners. When applied to us, this is all son of man is meant to convey. It's all it can convey. But Jesus himself has assumed this title. The eternal son of God joined us. He became one of us. He makes Son of Man a glorious title. He is holy and good and righteous and powerful. He will come again to judge. If Ezekiel was called Son of Man as a sort of condescending, put you in your place kind of title, just just listen to the famous passage of Daniel, who was also raised up as a prophet in Babylon, preaching to the arrogance of, of tyrants in the palace, where he writes, Out of the vision that he received of the final judgment. I was watching in the night visions, Daniel writes. And behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Then all peoples, that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Now these are fantastic words. We hear them every year when we have the 26th Sunday after Trinity at the end of this, the church year. And it's a wonderful promise of how God will give justice to his people and vindicate them when the Son of Man comes in his glory. The one like the Son of Man is clearly Christ, who ushers in the kingdom of God. When Jesus' disciples heard him say that they were going up to Jerusalem and that all should be accomplished, that were written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man, they surely had this prophecy in mind. They had glory in mind. So much did they have this glorious coming of the Son of Man in mind that not only did they ignore what the title actually meant, as we have just gone through it, But they even ignored the rest of what Jesus had to say. All that is written about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Say no more. This is awesome. We're going to Jerusalem and all affliction and humiliation will come to an end. The old kingdom now in bondage will rise up again to great prominence. And we ourselves are going to be a part of it. Say no more, Jesus. Or go ahead and say more. But either way, we're done listening but they should have listened, they would have learned. Jesus continued, for he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. St. Luke then records the simple summary statement, but they understood none of these things. The saying was, was hidden from them. And they did not know the things which were spoken. Now this is truly remarkable. What is there not to understand? How could it be hidden? It is so clear. Jesus is giving a very plain prediction of what will happen. But it is hidden from them because they are blinded by thoughts of glory. Blind people are said to have a keener sense of hearing. But not this kind of blindness When blind people think they can see, they hear only what they want to hear. This is how spiritual blindness works. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the very same events in our gospel lesson this morning. But while St. Luke simply records that they understood nothing as we just heard, Matthew and Mark tell us how they began to bicker among themselves. It's interesting. Luke just says it was hidden from them. Matthew and Mark tell us why. James and John, in particular, approached Jesus and asked Jesus to give them whatever they asked. Jesus said, as we heard also in our lesson, What do you want me to do for you? Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. You see where their mind was. You see now why Luke could say that they did not know the things that were spoken. What hid these things from them was the expectation of glory. The expectation of glory makes us competitive. Jesus' disciples wanted to be a part of glory. They completely ignored the main point that Jesus was making, to say nothing of what the title Son of Man meant. We need not get into how the conversation continued. Suffice it to say that Jesus told them that that they didn't know what they were asking. He assured them that they would suffer like he was about to suffer. And then he concluded his rebuke by telling all the disciples, Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. And then here he speaks those famous and precious words that we love so much. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And here, dear brothers and sisters, dear sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, here is why our Lord and Maker became one of us. And he did more than just become one of us. He took as his most precious title and dearest name and honor, the name Son of Man. And this is why he came to serve us. He came to take our place. He came to make this title of dishonor, this title that reminds us of our mortality and that puts us in our place. He came to make it his own by making our misery and suffering and sin his own and to imbue this title of humiliation with great honor. And he came to descend into the wretchedness of our fallen condition and to face every temptation and judgment. Every temptation he overcame and would not give in. He was without sin, but to the judgment he submitted. He took God's judgment upon himself and bore it.
1: He was delivered to
0: heathen abusers. He was mocked and insulted and spit upon, scourged and killed. And the third day he rose again. Just think. This is what Jesus was talking about. It is what you expect me to talk about, I hope. He was foretelling the central truth of our confession and creed. He was foretelling our salvation from sin, death, and hell. But see how the disciples' thoughts drifted to glory as soon as he said that all would come to pass concerning the Son of Man. Oh, they had an eternal eternal kingdom in mind. They had power in mind. They had in mind what would bring them honor and free them from whatever troubles they had. We marvel that something so clear as day could be hidden from the disciples, but the same often happens to us. We have the same things in mind as they did. We have our own troubles in mind. How often are we, instead of processing what we're being taught as the preacher says it out loud, how often are we holding conversations instead? Perhaps not out loud with others, but at least in our own minds. This is exactly what happened with the disciples. The news they needed most went in one ear and out the other. Like the disciples, we are also often too fixated on what will bring us honor and glory to pay attention to how Jesus himself entered into his glory. We are so fixated on our own feelings that we end up aspiring to be greater than one another. We're so fixated on how good it will be when God finally relieves us from stress, sorrow, pain, poverty, or whatever displeasure seems to be lasting too long that we forget what good and excellent things God means to teach us by requiring that we endure such things, like perhaps to teach us to lean in and focus on the conversation that God is having and not on the thoughts of our own mind. And it's all because although we know what good God has accomplished by the suffering and death of Jesus, we've heard it, we confess it, we know it, yet we do not ponder it as we should. We don't reflect on why it was necessary. We are very short-sighted, even to blindness sometimes. But the blind cannot lead the blind. The blind must look out, so to speak, or really just feel things out for himself. And any participation among the blind, any seeming appearance of brotherhood, all their seeming working together becomes strictly practical and survivalistic and self-motivated as each one feels out for himself. Spiritual blindness in regard to the things of God makes us insensitive to the needs of one another. And worse, spiritual blindness makes us insensitive to our own need. When what we expect from God is glory, and when we despise the cross that he lays upon each one of us individually, we will find ourselves competing with one another, rather than loving and serving one another. We will find ourselves ignoring what Jesus himself is telling us, too busy trying to figure out how to claim our place of honor, What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked James and John, who had glory in mind. They wanted Jesus to put them higher than the others. When we resent our own cross, we see no good in Jesus' cross. And so we take no interest in other people's crosses either. But here we have a son of man who is not embittered, Here we have a Son of Man who cries out for mercy to the Son of David. He sees more than the rest. He sees his sin. He sees his need. He cries out. He is helpless. He spoils the scene of glory. It's like a a pre-Palm Sunday to conclude our pre-Lent. Jesus is passing by. Be quiet, he is told. But he cries out all the more, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And to him, Jesus asked the same question as he asked James and John, what do you want me to do for you? That I may see, that I may receive my sight. Receive your sight, your faith has saved you. So Jesus says to those who ask for mercy, Those longing for glory ask for foolish things. Those longing for mercy get what they ask for. This man saw more than it appeared, because he had nothing to look at but his own sin. And so he listened. He called out to him who was identified as Jesus. He called out to him whom the prophets had identified as the King of Israel. If we will see the value in our own crosses, our our suffering, the value of God biding his time while we must endure unpleasantness, if we will see, we must acknowledge our blindness and cling to the one we have heard and know. We must cry out for mercy for not seeing one another's needs. We must cry out for mercy for not having acknowledged our own. When Jesus said that all the prophets wrote about the Son of Man, that these, all these things must be accomplished, he wasn't just talking about all the prophecies of himself. Really, how often is this Jesus called the Son of Man in the Old Testament? No, he was speaking about each son of Adam being put in his place. All this must be accomplished. He was making crystal clear what the Son of David came to do, to suffer in the place of all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. He came to bear all judgments and wrath appointed for sinners. What have the prophets written about the Son of Man? What have the prophets written about you? What judgment of God? Jesus came to bear it. So as David was selected from among the sheep, a man of no appearance or pomp, but a humble servant, so the Son of Man was selected among the sons of men. Before he was selected to judge in splendor, as Daniel foretold, who prophesied in palaces, Jesus bided his time teaching slaves who labored under a terrible burden. Like Ezekiel, he let himself be put in his place Son of man, speak to my people. Son of man, prophesy. And so Jesus did. Before Son of Man becomes a title of glory, see what the title is in its simplest meaning. He is one of us. He is among us as one who serves, as one who suffers, as one who sees your need better than you do, as one who rises again with righteousness to bestow on sinners through faith, sinners who ask for mercy, as one who teaches us what we need to know and believe, The one who comes in glory to establish an eternal kingdom is none other than God's servant king who bears our sin and opens our eyes to the love of God. Here is love. Where God lays our sin on Jesus and gives to us all that he won. Here is love. Faith that passes away clings to it. Hope that passes away trusts in it. And we see it by listening. And he listens to us. He stops all commotion and asks us what we want. He settles your mind and tells you to ask him what you want. We want mercy. Oh, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? King David asked in Psalm 8, for you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. His glory and honor consists in this, that he has perfected love toward you. He has borne all judgment, made you free, given you sight. He has made sons of men not return to the earth forever, but have an eternity to look forward to in heaven. And with this hope, we have a heavenly perspective that always knows what to ask for. And also knows for sure that he who suffered, died, and rose will give it to you. In Jesus' name, amen.